Hannah Kyle Brown, Osage, 1896 to 1921, Fairfax, Oklahoma. Because she died where the ravine falls into water, because they dragged her down to the creek, in death she wore her blue broadcloth shirt. Though frost blanketed the grass, she cooled her feet in the spring. Because I turned the log with my foot, her slippers floated downstream into the dam. Because, after the thaw, the hunters discovered her body. Because she lived without her mother, because she had inherited head rights for oil beneath the land, she was carrying his offspring. The sheriff disguised her death as whiskey poisoning. Because, when he carved her body up, he saw the bullet hole in her skull. Because, when she was murdered, the leg clutchers bloomed, but then froze under the weight of frost. During Ta Cha Ziga Sete, the killers of the flower moon, I will wade across the river of the blackfish, the otter, the beaver. I will climb the bank where the willow never dies. Elise Passion, Wigi A, from Bestiary, the poem that inspired the title for Killers of the Flower Moon. and welcome to the America of America podcast. I'm Will Milam. Last week, I mentioned that I was reading Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant, which is the uh, recent book that came out and it came out in 2017 about the Osage Indian murders coinciding with the birth of the FBI as a, as a nationally prominent, prominent, excuse me, uh, investigatory organization. Uh, I am really, really, really late to the boat on that. It was published in April 2017. It's now May of 2021, so I'm over four years late. Uh, I remember seeing it in bookstores all the way back in 2017. People were telling me to read it in 2017, and I think my natural contrarianness just kept me from doing it. It wasn't until uh, a couple of weeks ago I was driving back from Dallas and I was on the phone with a friend of mine who is... Uh, living near the production site of the movie and he was talking about how everything was uh everything was going because of the production in Bartlesville and Osage County that I finally broke down and decided I should read the book and then I told myself I was not going to do an episode on it because there's no way to present the Osage murders because it's already been so well done by David Grant. That's true but I decided that I can do an episode to kind of review what I thought about the book and also review I think kind of the broader context of where uh, Indian civil rights were in the 1920s. So that's what this episode is going to focus on today, kind of a, a little bit of a review and maybe a little bit of background information that would help put the legal situation of the Osage Nation into co uh, proper context. So with that being said, uh, I'm not going to give any spoilers away in the book, um, even though if you just type in Osage murders into uh, Google search, uh, the, the basic facts of, you know, who done it and when, when they did it will come up. So um, it's pretty easily spoiled, but uh, I think David Grant does a really good job of still keeping uh, 
the the uh, the suspense alive. But so I'm not gonna give away any spoilers to the book. If you haven't read it, you can go ahead and listen to this episode. But you know, um, first of all, I'm just gonna start here. The book is really good. Uh, there, there's there's a reason it's uh, it's gotten rave reviews. There's a reason it's gonna be made into a 200 million dollar movie. It's a really gripping story. Uh, Grand um, tells it in a really compelling way. He's a gifted writer, gifted storyteller, gifted historian, all in one go. Uh, so if you haven't read it, I, I recommend you pick up a copy as soon as possible and read it. Um, I think obviously reading the book would help give context to this podcast episode, but it's not completely necessary. So if you haven't read the book, you can go ahead and still listen. Don't, uh, or uh, if you have read the book and you know other people have read the book who don't listen to this podcast, please send this episode to them so we can get them listening to the America of America. That helps them. That helps me. Everybody's happy. That being said, I've been thinking a lot about why The Killers of the Far Moon was so wildly successful. Uh, especially now, um, I've been trying to think about what, what formula made it as, as wildly off the charts good as it is, especially when the Osage murders, uh, have been covered. There's, there's been some fairly high profile books written about them, uh, especially about, uh, not only the murders themselves, but, you know, obviously the, the Osage being as, as wealthy of the group of people as they were in the twenties. The first element that I, that I think plays into this is Grand's expanded narrative that, Gran uh, tells the story from several different angles. Obviously, he focuses on uh, on White and the FBI, as well as the Osage murders themselves, as well as bringing in um, you know extended analysis and narrative of the prosecution. Uh, and also, there at the end, I think has a really good, um, really good set of uh, set of journalism and experience of him going to Oklahoma and obviously interacting with the the Osage and Pawhuska. And talking about um, meeting with the descendants of the Burkharts, and I, I think it makes for a really good uh, testimony to um, the the currentness and the, the contemporary relevance of Indian culture, especially in Oklahoma. Which is, if you're a native Oklahoman or you ever spent a lot of time there, you know that that is a very real thing that is sometimes hard to explain to people that aren't from Oklahoma. And I think Grand does that a lot of justice. The second reason I think uh, the book has been so wildly popular, which this is kind of obvious. Is that one? It's it's a it's a compelling story. Um, it's it's a story that uh, really can tell itself. But not only is it uh, a great story, just as it is, uh, it's it's a story that was handled very well by a very gifted writer. As I've already said, Grant is an excellent writer. Grant is an excellent storyteller. Uh, if you've ever heard of the movie The Lost City of Z or The Lost City of Zed. Uh, that was also a really good book that uh, Grant wrote a couple years back. I read it. I think I was I was either in high school or college. Uh, it's about Percy Fawcett and uh, the the search for a uh, a lost um, Mesoamerican city in uh, the Amazon rainforest that had tragic implications. But uh, it was I thought a thoroughly interesting book, and they made a pretty good movie about it with Charlie Hunman. Uh, if you ever have the inkling to watch that movie or read that book, those are available. I assume somewhere, but the point remains that Grand knows what he's doing. the 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 writing is very good, so that's the the one of the other reasons that the book has been so wildly successful is that it was put into competent hands. The last reason that I think that the book is so good is specifically in our current uh, political and social environment. Um, the last uh, ten years of my life, uh, a lot of um, a lot of mental and spiritual energy and emotional energy is put into concepts of uh, racial inequities, uh, especially in the American justice system. And this is something that Killers of the Fire Moon focuses on um, 
heavily and in very real concrete instances from history, uh, being not only the, the legal barriers that the Osage faced despite their tremendous wealth, as well as the, uh, the, lack of, uh, the lack of legal remedies offered by the state authorities. It is a story, a true story, where uh, justice could be achieved despite um, some institutional barriers uh, that, if not for the intervention of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, probably would have never been achieved, and the uh, the killings probably would have gone on, and the the bad men in the story would have only gotten richer. So it is uh, truly kind of a, a story of a group of people facing down uh, terrible odds in the society, in the political and judicial uh, barriers in their way, uh, achieved a form of justice in 1920s United States, which I think is a, a story that speaks well to the American political mindset in uh, the late 2010s and early 2020s. I have not read any reviews of the book. Um, I've done very little research on the book itself, aside from reading the book. I've done some research on, obviously, uh, um, the state of civil rights at the time. Um, I'm pretty sure that there's been some uh, think piece written about the the, the parallels between um, racial inequities now and in Killers of the Flower Moon. I don't mean to uh, to take that from anybody. I'm definitely not the first to come up with that. I'm just saying that I haven't read any of it yet, so I don't know. I don't know who to cite. I don't know who to uh, give attribution to. So uh, if if someone has done that, uh, if you let me know, I'll go ahead and cite them, even though I I just haven't read enough to know. So with that, I think we should shift the discussion away from the story of the Osage murders itself and move into kind of a a broader. A uh, broader discussion of the state of Indian or Native American civil rights in 1920s Oklahoma, because that's a that's kind of a longer story in and of itself, and it goes long before the Osage murders and continued long after the Osage murders. If you've read the book or if you know anything about the Osage murders, uh, the big elephant in the room at the setting of the story is that. The individual Osage people had very, very little political and legal power, even over their own property. They were, for all intents and purposes, stuck in this weird paradox where they were per capita the wealthiest group of people on the planet uh, because of uh, the oil head rights that they had in Osage County, Oklahoma, while at the same time they had really no power to even use their own cash. The guardian systems were set up to where the court had to appoint a white guardian for any Osage person who was either half-blood or full up to full-blood. Uh, so they, they didn't have control over their own property. Uh, so that was obviously a glaring uh, civil rights violation to where, you know, the belief is that, in, in my opinion, that it was that system that made the Osage murders possible, that if the Osage just had control over their own property. There wouldn't be this struggle to concentrate the head rights into one person. Maybe there would be. I don't know. I don't. I don't really think too hard into the mind of demented people. But it seems to me that this legal barrier had a lot to do with the killings themselves. And this stems from a larger problem of citizenship for uh, Indian or Native American peoples, uh, because it, in, on one hand, the uh, the Indian tribes, the Native nations in the United States, 
are sovereign entities. They've they've been in America uh, long before European settlers, and they're still here. So there's obviously that level of sovereignty and that level of citizenship, and there's also the broader United States that has all the land. Uh, so there's uh, there's been a long debate, and it's going to go long after I'm dead, about the relationship between tribal sovereignty and uh, national sovereignty with the United States. Most recently, that blew up with the McGirt case. If uh, if you have any knowledge of that, that was the uh, recent Supreme Court um, decision. I know I've talked about it earlier on the podcast where uh, the Supreme Court essentially said that tribal lands in Oklahoma have some jurisdiction over criminal uh, criminal law in the state. And we're still trying to figure out, as of now, uh, what that means for practical ramifications in state uh, state murder investigations. It's been kind of a mess, and that's something I, I at one point I, I just want to do a do an episode on McGirt. But for all you need to know, it's just it's complicated. Dual sovereignty is complicated. For a long time, uh, Indians, Native Americans, didn't have the right to vote because they were not considered to be U.S. citizens or considered to be tribal citizens. If you remember from the Red River Bridge War, this was a very interesting um, conundrum for uh, uh, Franklin Colbert when he was trying to get his uh, when he was trying to get his uh, bridge with the monopoly. He wanted the monopoly on that bridge over the Red River, but he wasn't a United States citizen. He was a citizen of the Chickasha Nation, so he had to go all the way to Washington to get it. The first large group of Native Americans or Indians that were able to get United States citizenship were the Cherokee in the 1817 Cherokee Treaty. So that's my own tribe. This was confounded and confused, however, when after the American Civil War in the 1860s, the United States passed the Civil Rights Act, and they also passed the uh, Civil War Amendments, so the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, and part of uh, the 14th Amendment is equal protection clauses. But that actually was specifically denied to members of Native American tribes because the idea there was that, you know, we have an element of tribal sovereignty in, I guess, the nicest reading of that, the, the kind of lesser reading of that is that the government was specifically just trying to exclude members of the tribes. But uh, the members of the tribes, as of that date, didn't actually have uh, a lot of those rights. In fact, if you're uh, an astute observer of American politics over the last couple of years, uh, several years ago, I can't really remember when, there was, a, there was an argument made that uh, anchor children, so children um, born in the United States uh, to non-citizen residents or non-permanent residents did not actually get automatic citizenship because they were not subject to the laws of the United States. And what that's referring to is specifically um, these anti-tribal um, provisions in United States laws where because members of the tribe were subject to tribal law and not the United States law, that these legal protections were not actually given to Native Americans. But that requires a large qualifier because that is a little bit too mean to put on the United States government. And I mean that sincerely because in 1868, there was the Treaty of Fort Laramie, and there was also the Indian Civil Rights Act, which was a statute um, passed by Congress, which uh, basically, for a long story short, uh, gave um, a lot of the Bill of Rights uh, rights to uh, members of tribes. So that's things like to peacefully assemble, essentially think of the Bill of Rights, and that was just passed as a statute given to Native Americans. So the government did, Congress did go through some steps to ensure some basic protections for members of tribes, so long as obviously if they're going to be living in the United States land, there needs to be some level of protection. 
Uh, most importantly, though, to note is that amongst those rights that was that were not included was the right to vote, and that's where we're going to go from here. Now, the history of Native Americans and tribal members and the right to vote is long and detailed and requires brains and minds much more efficient and better than mine. So here I'm going to talk about, I'm going to skip ahead 20 years. So we left off at 1868. Uh, we're going to skip all the way to the late 1800s with the Dawes Act. The Dawes Act of 1897 uh, set about to reform or recreate the traditional Native American, so I'm going to focus on the Cherokee Nation because that's my own tribe and what I understand the best. So traditional Cherokee methods of agriculture, of more communal agriculture, that is going to remake that system into a more uh, Anglo um, private property uh, style of agriculture, where instead of the tribe owning all the land, the land would be subdivided into allotments. And a lot of uh, individual a lot of individuals were actually given the right to vote if they took these allotments. So it was kind of a quid pro quo. Um, this was in 1897. Well, the Dawes Act in that sense was tremendously uh, successful in what it was trying to do um, in its most forget and, and I guess in the best sense, it brought um, a bunch of tribes into more modern methods of agriculture. In kind of the worst reading of it, it, it subdivided a lot of these plots, which made it easier to be bought up by uh, by um, other American citizens moving into those lands. You can read it how you want to. Um, I, I do want to stop here and say that I do know a lot of, uh, of members of my own tribe, the Cherokee Nation, who do defend this like like insincerely, that there is a sincere defense that that style of farming is actually just more efficient, and which is actually true. So it's, uh, you know, I, I, I struggle because I kind of agree with that. I also have a if you've picked up anything from this podcast, I have a, uh, I have kind of a gut defense of good things, um, whether it be, uh, whether it be deep deuce or whether it be parts of Oklahoma that I think are very good and I want to preserve. One of those is um, uh, kind of our tribal heritage, which uh, I've been trying to uh, make more concrete steps to preserve in my own life. But that being said, there is actually a very good argument that this was good for the Cherokee Nation in a way that it made Cherokee farms much more efficient and it uh, increased food supplies. So that argument is there and that that is a sincere argument. So I don't want to come out and say that the only thing that this caused was the buying up the allotments of Cherokee land by non-Cherokees, even though that definitely was a result of the Dawes Act. So by the time that Theodore Roosevelt was president in the first couple of years of the 1900s, there were about 50,000 citizens in the United States that were also tribal citizens, tribal members. Fast forward a couple years to 1906, you get the Oklahoma Enabling Act, which gave uh, a lot of those tribal members and just people living in Oklahoma the power to elect their own delegates because you have to have the power to vote to elect delegates to create the state of Oklahoma because you had to elect delegates to go create the Oklahoma Constitution and to make Oklahoma a state. And that was really when uh, full kind of voting power started to come into play amongst tribal citizens in the uh, in the nations in Oklahoma. And you might be thinking about what is going on um, in at the same time and as, as the voting rights expand. And uh, if you guessed oil was becoming a thing, you'd be right. This was really uh, the beginning of the oil boom in Oklahoma that as uh, these nations got 
removed. So think about the Cherokees getting removed from the eastern part of the United States to the western part of the United States, at least the western band of Cherokee. If you remember from the Battle of Claremore Mound, these were western band Cherokee. Uh, we did find oil. And at this time, oil became one of the most precious and uh, invaluable commodities in the United States or in the world, it still is. And one of the richest parts of Oklahoma's land for oil was Osage County, where the Osage Nation was located. And this is how uh, it came to be that the Osage Indians in the early part of the 1900s were the wealthiest group of people per capita anywhere in the world. Uh, uh, amongst any white men in any United States area or European country, the Osage Indians were per capita, per capita wealthier. It is true. It's, it's pretty um, crazy to think about, especially this far ahead, but they didn't get to enjoy the fruits of that wealth as readily as you'd like to. Um, there certainly was some, uh, some, some fancy displays of wealth in Osage County. There are talks of large houses uh, fancy cars, um, obviously a lot of good expenditure, but the government then set about to create guardianship programs. And I talked about this earlier on this episode. So like I said, if you were a half-blood Osage to a full-blood Osage, you had to have a white guardian appointed by the court unless you could demonstrate competency. This, by all stretch of the imagination, was incredibly unjust, and it was just an absolute terrible idea on a moral level and a policy level. This created a lot of being a lot of the Osages being cheated out of their money, uh, being price gouged for goods. If you, I, I really don't want to repeat what David Grant says. If you if you haven't read the book, you should read the book. There's some pretty just egregious examples of the way the Osages were getting taken advantage of by people who had nothing to do with the actual wealth that was being produced. Later on in the 1920s, probably in part due to the Osage murders, uh, the guardianship um, rules were, were abolished and the, uh, the Osage were able to, to have full control of their property. But unfortunately, um, like a lot of things, the, the tribe was devastated by the Great Depression and the drop-off in the price of oil. In the heyday of the Osage oil boom, it was said that Powhuska, which is the capital of the, uh, the Osage nation, had as many attorneys as Oklahoma City did, which made me think back to, uh, to Alfalfa Bill. If you remember from the Red River Bridgewater episode, and we'll get to more Alfalfa Bill in the future, Alfalfa Bill was a failed attorney in Fort Worth and eventually went to Tishomingo, where the capital of the Chickasaw Nation was, so Alfalfa Bill could at least make a living as a lawyer because, uh, like I said in that episode, there was, the, there was the contrast between United States federal law, Oklahoma state law, and Chickasaw law. So there was a lot of demand for attorneys that could parse these different types of law. And I imagine there was something similar going on in Pawhuska. I also imagine, you know, you just had to have a bunch of oil and gas attorneys there drawing up oil and gas leases. Shout out SMU Law for teaching me how to do that. Haven't ever done it. If you know someone who needs someone to do that, please give me a call. And though that's where we're going to leave off with Killers of the Flower Moon, the fight for civil rights amongst Indians and Native American tribes obviously went went goes on till today. Uh, the latter part of the 20th century would produce civil rights activists, um, guys like Vine Deloria, who wrote a series of books on the subject, uh, Custer Die for Your Sins, God is Red. These are all very thought-provoking, and I recommend anybody who's interested in the subject to read them. 
for full disclosure, I'm not really politically aligned with Vine Deloria. I, I find his writing very good and some of his arguments compelling, especially his uh, use of the term Indian rather than Native American or indigenous person as Indian uh, root is Latin for in Deo, meaning people in God. But even though I don't agree with Von Deloria, I think his writing is very much worth reading. So if you have any interest in the Native American civil rights movement, go ahead and give Von Deloria a read. And with that, uh, we're going to end our conversation of David Grant's Killers of the Flower Moon and, uh, and just the general um, Indian civil rights movement. Uh, again, I, I really recommend you pick up that book if you haven't already. And if you have read it, which I, I hope many of you have, uh, please uh, feel free to shoot me an email or shoot me a text or shoot me anywhere that you can find me. Uh, your opinions on the book, what you liked about it, what you thought could be better, or if you have any kind of opinions on the subject generally. Uh, I'm, I'm, it's pretty fresh in my mind. I only read it. I finished it a couple days ago. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of keen to talk to some people about it because you know I have some ideas that I need to develop that I couldn't really use in this episode because I haven't run them by anybody. Uh, so if uh, you want to do that, uh, please shoot me an email at uh, ChautauquaReview at gmail.com. Again, that's ChautauquaReview at gmail.com. Spelling's in the show notes. And as always, I hope everybody has had a wonderful weekend. I hope everybody's having a great Monday morning so far, and I hope everybody's ready to have a great week. Uh, again, we are, uh, uh, our listeners in India, you are in my thoughts and prayers. And um, I'm so glad that you were that you were giving us a listen. And uh, if you have any interest, please shoot me an email. And let me know how you and your families are doing or if you have uh, specific uh, prayer intentions. I'd love to hear those from you. And uh, with that, um, can't wait to see everybody again next week. And uh, as always, I'm Will Milam, and this is the America of America podcast. Thanks for listening.